Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with your hosts, Jake and Randy, discussing all things freestyle frisbee and whatever else that comes up. Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. Hey, Randy, how's it going? Hey, Jake, I am doing fabulous today. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. I'm actually really excited because we're about to start a new journey with a new guest. Yeah, so I'm excited too. And and one of the things that's kind of cool about doing this podcast is that we meet so many people, but you actually have never met this particular guest. It's true. I, I know some of his journey and our paths have crossed a few times, but I can't wait to do a deeper dive and to hear the whole story. So probably not many of the new players are very familiar with our guest either. So, you know, he's had so much history and he was one of the original Venice Green Jammers, one of the early jam meccas that spawned so many great players and so many Hall of Fame players. Um, he was Donnie Rhodes' early partner and uh, he was Kate Dow's first freestyle partner. He attended multiple Rose Bowls. He was part of that whole North American series tournament scene. He was a Frisbee World cover boy. He's a disc collector extraordinaire, and he's also a world-class musician. So I would like to welcome Gary Perlberg to shoot in the Frisbee. So Gary, welcome. We're so excited to have you. Hey guys, really, really wonderful to be here. Thanks so much, Randy and Jake. First time for us meeting, really pleased to, to meet today. Thank you. Yeah, well, it's pretty cool that you guys are getting to meet for the first time here. And, you know, we're going to do this deep dive together. So, you know, with that, why don't we just kind of start where we start with everybody? Because this is where the journey begins. And how did Frisbee come into your life? Well, let me start, guys, with saying that uh, it's really a pleasure to be here. And I really want to thank you for the opportunity to tell my story. So thank you again. Okay, at summer camp in 1964, mom and dad brought me a flying toy, the first flying toy I ever had seen. This was called the Mark, uh, the Mark 7 by, I think, a company called Dynamic Toy. Uh, it, it was something you threw into the air. It did a really cool question mark sort of figure eight in the air, and then it, it came down to earth spinning uh, with a center, a weighted center. Uh, I have one in my hand, and I'm showing you guys. So it was generally uh, something that looked like this, and it had a, a weighted center. So for anybody listening, oh. it's like a kind of like a ring with a really, really thin band, and then it looks like a peace sign, which I'm guessing are the wings that make it fly and do the gyrations. This is this one is very particularly cool, but others just have uh, regular uh, veins emanating from the center. Gotcha. And um, it was a big hit at camp. I mean, everybody wanted to play with it. We broke it shortly. A week later, mom and dad came again, and I said, Mom, you've got to bring me another one of those. Everyone went crazy for it, and she did. And that's the one that I still have in my collection with the in, uh, original uh, car that it came You still on. have that original it, one? Yeah. Wow. It's the first flying disc in my collection. Uh, that was 1964. Now, in 1964... That was an extremely important year because that was the New York World's Fair. And only 10 or 12 miles from my home on Long Island in, in Flushing, Queens, was uh, the site of the World's Fair. And there I did, in fact, see the first, well, I guess it was a Pluto platter that was, they were using, but they were throwing a, a Frisbee in a demonstration. 
and I did catch it. Now, I didn't see the entire thing. It wasn't like they announced it. And I apparently it was an older man and a younger man, and they were doing a demo with a flying disc. And that was it for me. Uh, coupled with wow. the, the earlier experience with this flying toy mom and dad brought me. And now only about a month later, there I am at the World's Fair watching this. This made really an impression upon me. And sure enough, I that started my life as a flying disc enthusiast. Wow, that is crazy. So 1964, you are seeing a demo. Like, so what does that demo look like? Are they just throwing it back and forth and playing catch? Like, that's got to be one of the first demos ever. They did tricks, and I specifically remember them skipping it off the pavement. I remember it being semi-indoors. It might have been in a sheltered area, but there was a crowd. I got through the crowd, saw this happening, and made really an impression upon me, and uh, from then on, I, I think I just sought out flying discs to play with. Within a year, I had the Chartreuse Pro. I don't remember how I got it. I still have that, too, in my collection. If I got my hands on it early on, it never left. That's pretty much how it's been with me. Anything I uh, played with or saw uh, early on, I, I kept it. Eventually put a collection together. So the skip shot really caught your attention. It's so funny because we've had others mentioned the skip shot as being one of those sparks that I have to learn more about this thing. So when was the first time that you kind of saw freestyle and when did you kind of start that whole journey? Well, by 1968, uh, there was a good bunch of us and we gathered at one of the great spots on Long Island. It's the Roslyn Duck Pond. And that was really uh, a mecca at, at one point for, for everything that was cool and hip and, and frisbee. So uh, a group of my friends and I, we, we got a master in our hands once upon a time, and that was the go-to disc, a black master. We went through many, many of those over a, you know, a period of a few years, and we'd line up on the large field above the pond and throw back and forth, maybe uh, three on one side, three on another, two or three different discs, and it was about a 40-yard throw. That's where we actually were freestyling. We were doing trick catches, uh, caught behind the back. We caught between our legs. And we tried to develop throws, but we weren't very necessarily good at it. The throw that I remember was uh, the backhand, of course. We tried to throw it upside down, but we could never get it to go very far because we hadn't learned, you know, the angle of attack yet. But behind the back catch and between the legs catches were, were, were the coolest thing we did at the time. Was a group of people more than one disc at the same time just off flowing back and forth? Yeah, three pairs of guys. And you could throw it to anybody on the other side. So it was a back and forth, but you didn't necessarily have to throw to the partner directly across from you. Yeah, but you had to be and, ready because it could be coming from anybody. <laughs> we were ready. <laughs> yeah. What's crazy is that also there was that group of players that spawned out of Washington Square. And so that was their thing as well as to throw the master across the fountain at Washington Square, kind of doing the same thing you guys were doing, but years later. So you guys were kind of doing this before that. Is that correct? Well, I, I know that by 1968, we were fully entrenched as a Frisbee group. We met there regularly. We played on Saturdays, on weekends. We went to school during the day. In 1968, I was 15 years old. So I, um, you know, I had school, I had homework, I had after-school stuff. But weekends were devoted to uh, Frisbee play. Uh, it was uh, one of the great, great uh, memories of my life was going to Roslyn Duck Pond and playing. So did you ever hook up with the Washington Square guys or the Central Park guys? Or was that just totally a separate, a separate great, game going on? Great question, Randy. I finally saw 
Frisbee play in the New York City area. When in 1972, I drove, at the time I had a 1966 GTO convertible, very collectible car. I was afraid for the car when I parked it, uh, area outside of uh, Central Park. And I walked to a scene where, because I had heard there was a Frisbee tournament in the park. It was at such and such a place, maybe near the band shell, whatever. So I parked where I, where I felt I was close to the band shell. I uh, arrived on the scene and saw organized Frisbee competition. And who did I see? Kerry Colmar. Kerry Colmar was the first guy I laid eyes on who, to me, looked like a professional Frisbee player. I watched him. I was, I was amazed. I really was. I was mesmerized by his proficiency, his talent, his whole zenness of how he approached throwing the disc. And I stayed on maybe an hour. Then I started to worry about the car. I had things to do. I went back onto Long Island. And uh, that was my first uh, experience, really seeing anything really organized. Wow, that is so interesting because we don't hear your name mentioned amongst that early tribe. So you were you were there, you were in the mix. So what were the next steps after you saw that first sort of organized event? So that's the summer that I moved uh, back to California. I had already tried to live in California in 71 after graduating high school. But by 72, I was ready to go back for uh, for good. And I did drive across the country in the GTO. So uh, in late uh, 1972, I wound up moving to California, where I, I have lived ever since. Uh, and uh, one day in, um, in 1973, probably in the summertime, they started to advertise that there would be a KMET Frisbee competition. Uh, they held the first KMET Frisbee contest at the La Brea Tar Pits. KMET at the time was a very popular rock uh, radio station. So I showed up and now I'm going to be in my first Frisbee tournament. <laughs> One of the coolest things because they were uh, the wild DJs that were typically on the show, on the shows. I won this meet. Uh, they had three uh, events. There was a distance, there was an accuracy, and there was an event where they threw to you and you had to do quick trick catches. Wow. And all I had was what, what we had back on, Lo on Long Island, which was behind the back, between the legs. But I won that event. I won the distance event. I came second in accuracy, and I won the tournament. I'm being interviewed on the radio now by the, the DJ. They're just going crazy over this. They, uh, they've got a winner of their first Frisbee tournament, and I'm basking in the glory uh, of all this. At that exact moment when they've said, all right, Gary, thanks so much. You're our champion. The arm comes over my shoulder. I'm feeling a man holding me around my shoulders. And I look, and to my right is a man in a suit and a tie. And he's saying, uh, uh, come on, uh, son, uh, take a walk with me. So I, I look at the guy, and I'm like, there's a guy in a suit and a tie. And he's got a hold of me, and he's asking me to take a walk. I was stunned when he whipped out his card, and sure enough, it's uh, Wham-O executive Goldie Norton. He's the public relations head of, of uh, Wham-O. He introduces himself. He says to me, kid, you got a future in this. He's telling me that uh, I'm going to go far in this sport, and I got to hang in there. He, he says some, some really great things about you know how I've played and how I've held myself, and he's let me know that I'm, I'm somebody he thinks is going to go far in the sport of Frisbee. He then intimates to me, you know, we're going to have a World Frisbee Championship next year. 
Now, keep in mind, this is uh, fall of 73. And he's telling me that next summer, there's going to be a World Frisbee Championship at the Rose Bowl. So I now know about this. I said to him, well, Goldie, can I be in this thing? You think I'm great, right? You're, he actually said, no, no, no. You're not there yet. <laughs> You're not good enough. I'm like, what? He said, well, you know, there's, there's a group of players and they're, they're well-known people. And, but listen, I want you to attend this event. I want you to go there. I want you to hang out. I want you to learn, soak up everything you can, and we'll see how it goes. Goldie told me to call him. Uh, he had asked me to call him right before the weekend of that Rose Bowl, which was August 74. He asked me to meet him at the front gate at 11 a.m. So I dragged my posse of, of, of friends, and uh, there he was. He brought us in early and sat me down on the front row of the 50-yard line and told me, you know, check everything out and watch it all. And sure enough, um, we had an amazing time. Uh, this happened again another for another year. I, I asked him what's going to happen next. He asked, he told me that, you know, we were going to have another one next year. And I said, well, you think I'll be good enough to play in that? He, uh, he said, you, you really have got to get seasoned. And a whole other year went by where um, I did everything I could uh, to better myself. In the meantime, there was another tournament I had played in. There was the Vinya contest that came through Griffith Park in 74. Anyway, by, uh, by 75, here we are again, meeting him early at the gate at the Rose Bowl. He showed me right in, 50-yard line, first row. A, a different posse of friends watched it. You know, by 76, of course, the uh, the National Series started, and that was my in, and that was how you got into the Rose Bowl at, at that point. Yeah, so were you seeing, like, the Velasquez brothers? At, who were the headliner freestylers that you were seeing that were well, that were playing? Well, if you recall, in 75, Dan Roddick and Dr. I, Irv Kalb, won freestyle in 1975. Dan was a presence, I mean— to watch him, he was he was the consummate master of of a, of a flying disc, and it was all about tipping and under leg catches and some wild construction moves. Of course, Irv had an amazing delivery. He threw air bounces, and he was he was like a blur. It was an amazing thing to watch those. That was the the end all and be all of frisbee back then. So when you say your posse, do you have a group of folks that you're that you're freestyling with? Like where oh, what's taking place? So I settled in an area called Atwater of Los Angeles. And that's very, very close to Griffith Park. There's a beautiful merry-go-round there. And on the field just under the merry-go-round is where we decided to call home turf. And in that posse was the original Griffith Park Four, and that included Jesse Ugalde, who's Tita's brother, and Mike Casey, and Mark Sebastian, and uh, who's John Sebastian's brother. And the four of us were pretty much the, the group that uh, hung there routinely and played our every weekend. We added to that group, we had my friend Maurice showed up. What really, really lit our flames was when Chuck Pitt Chuck Pitt was the original, an original Berkeley Frisbee group member. He joined us. He had moved to Los Angeles. Uh, him and I became great friends. And uh, he was just an amazing guy. He was the guy that gave us all our CPIs. The CPI was now our go-to disc. And we freestyled with a CPI. And uh, Chuck did actually teach us many different throws. We learned the upside-down throw from him. 
We learned the sidearm from him. Uh, he was instrumental in uh, developing our, our skill level. You know, I love Chuck Pitt, and I don't know what happened to him. So where does Venice emerge from that? So that was 74, 75. Talk about that merging of where does, how does that appear? Honestly, I don't remember how I first wound up at, at, at the beach playing, but I know it had to do with a couple of guys that might have been friends with Sebastian, but I, I can't be sure. But we eventually wound up meeting at a lifeguard station. I believe it was 22. So lifeguard station 22 was the place to meet uh, and play on the beach. And it was, a, it was a wild mixture of people who had come to play Frisbee there. That went on for probably uh, six months or so. And we finally settled in the Venice Green. That one area right, uh, right in front of the sidewalk cafe, flat grass, beautiful the skate path going right around us for all the world to see and for us to view and perfect wind you know perfect conditions it was it became mecca it really did and uh, of course it's world famous now the venice green was was the greatest place to play that i could ever imagine and i certainly remember it you know from the frisbee world article it was like oh the venice green you know it was like sort of this mythical magical place you know i was in awe of all those people so i mean there were some amazing talents that came out of that i know that mentioned early that you know you were donnie rhodes when donnie rhodes early partners and kate dow you were kate dow's first partner so talk about seeing Donnie Rhodes appear on the Venice Green. The Donnie Rhodes story is 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 a beautiful thing. Uh, we're all playing uh, on Christmas Day, nineteen seventy eight, and uh, we're um, we've we've all been talking about the the tournament we're going to put on. It's the uh, going to be the first Venice Frisbee tournament, spelled with a Z, and it's going to be late January. Uh, in uh, 1979. Anyway, we're all jamming and we're doing our regular thing. Lots of groups of, of freestyles, mostly twos and threes. And there's a break in the action. I know I'm sitting down at one point, and here comes here comes a little. This guy comes out of nowhere, uh, up walks this bedraggled uh, young man. The first thing out of his mouth is, "Hey, is, is this the Venice Green?" And and I look at him. I'm like, whoa, dude. And, and yeah, he he's bedraggled. He's uh, it, it's in fact Donnie Rhodes who has walked up, and I could just see this relief in him. Like, yes, he he made it. He's it's the end of the continent. There he is. You can see the beach from there, and he's he's just so he's overcome. He, I could tell the guy has uh, you know been through through a, a thing. He Donnie finds me the most. Um, interested in, in what he has to say. And uh, he asks me, can you help me get my stuff? So I said, yeah. And uh, I noticed right away that there's a station wagon parked at the dead end, right at the, uh, the sidewalk cafe. You can pull down the street. And uh, sure enough, there's a station wagon there. Uh, he opens the, the back uh, tailgate, takes out just a few bags of, th uh, of stuff. I help him carry it and I take him to the green. And now he's he's there. He's, he's telling us his adventure. He's just hitchhiked the last 800 miles was this or that. I think he originally came from uh, Colorado. You know, the last part of his leg of his adventure had started in Colorado and he's finally made it to the beach. He He's definitely going to need a place to stay. I just look at him and I go, you got nothing, right? And he goes, yeah, I got nothing. And I said, well, you're coming home with me. I had always taken uh, people home. Lots of people stayed at my house back in the day. You know, you have to realize that during the Rose Bowls, 
many people came early you know, to visit the beaches and play and warm up, and they needed places to stay. My house was, was that sort of house. Anyway, Donnie found a home with me, and it was, uh, it was, a, you know, it was a great partnership. Wow. Well, that was really an amazing Christmas present that was delivered to the Venice Green that day. Gary Perlberg, you were the one who got to open up that package and give it to the world. What a cool opportunity that was. It actually made me think of a question for you, Jake. And that is, were you aware of any jam meccas when you came into the scene in the mid-90s, like the Venice Green? Um, Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, I came into the scene just by finding some local jammers, I didn't really even know freestyle was a thing. I mean, I'd seen demos and stuff, but I didn't really get how big it was at the time. And so I was connected with our local scene. And the only way that I knew about other jam places is that Mike Esterbrook, who was kind of our leader, he would take us, he'd say, today we're going to San Francisco and we'd drive over there and meet some other people and Sacramento and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I didn't have the internet the way we have today and I didn't have uh, Frisbee World magazine the way that, that Donnie had. So there was just nothing out there to tell me where the meccas are and who the great jammers were. You know, I was just sort of feeling it out by slowly exploring the, the world around me. Wow, that's so interesting because you were right in the middle of when communication kind of started gearing up. And so, like you say, there was no Frisbee world and you were kind of just in this void of how does information get shared. And that really talks about how the Internet changed things so dramatically and letting people know where the jams were at. And Tommy Leitner was kind of the first one. And that was the first time you kind of started knowing where other jam scenes were, right? Yeah, totally. In fact, I remember, you know, I was have always been kind of a computer nerd. So I was on the internet before many people were on the internet. And I think Tommy was too, because I remember searching for Freestyle Frisbee and finding his website. And, you know, at that point, it was brand new. It was, I think, mostly either tournament results or how to learn new tricks, which that part was really interesting to me as a new player. Um, but it wasn't long after that he added a new feature that did list jam meccas where he had a, a map of the world and these markers and it told you who who to contact at every place which was it was really interesting to me but i was also too young to start reaching out to people and saying hey i'm going to show up in your town at least i wasn't quite as brave as donnie was back in the back in the 70s to be able to do that but it was cool to see that happen yeah and you know it's kind of amazing to think where we are in the current day that we just completed a virtual tournament that happened online which was tiny room battle challenge number four so from the time where there was nothing now there's actually online tournaments that are happening today right we all connect with each other online you know if i'm going to a new town i just go post in the facebook group hey i'm showing up to xyz city and somebody will reply "Hey, i'm here and then we hook up and jam but anyhow yeah you mentioned tiny room challenge and so uh, i just want to say congratulations to the winners of the tiny room challenge for uh, eduardo turi and bianca struntz um, you guys played great and you definitely deserve it. Yeah. And, you know, Tiny Room Challenge has certainly been a great way for us to all connect during this time of not being able to really connect with each other. So on that note, Jake, I will talk to you next time. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. To contact us or for more info, check us out at frisbeeguru.com. Home to Haynesville, shooting the frisbees, and live streaming freestyle frisbee. Oh, yeah!
Yeah!